Welcome to Books, Stories, People, with me, Nancy Richards. A clinical psychologist specialising in mental health and disability, Leslie Swartz has insight into the working of people's minds and feelings. But as a human and ordinary man, he's also vulnerable to feelings, like the rest of us, and like the rest of us, not always able to control them. Through his writing, however, he tries to make sense of them, to acknowledge and address them. But how does one ever really come to grips with the mixed feelings one has about one's parents, most especially when they've gone and you are left to pick over the memories? In old age, when the tables are turned and a parent becomes the one in need of care, the nature of that relationship is further complicated. In his book, How I Lost My Mother, Leslie tells the story of life, care and dying. Elsie, his mother, died back in 2011. So casting back to the beginning and to get some context, I asked him, what sort of childhood did he have? Yeah, I was born in a very small place called West Nicholson. And we moved to what is now Harare when I was, I was very, very young. It was quite an isolated life. My, my father was the first uh, chemist to work on a, the first cement factory there. Um, and we lived quite a long way out of town. We were the only Jewish family for miles and miles around. We never spoke about the weather because it was so wonderful. <laughs> um, and it, it, it was a, we were a small nuclear family, my, my parents and my sister and I. Huge looming over this were my father's mother, who um, from time to time lived with us, my grandmother and his great aunt, who were extremely difficult old women. And we always had the sense, I think, of being far away from family. My, both my parents were, were uh, from South Africa. They were great readers. They were always interested in the news. I, I remember being amazed to find out that not all children's parents discussed the news all the time because my mind did. So we, we always had the sense of being sort of on the edge of things in, in, in a whole range of ways. Huge influence on, on my life, my mother's life, was uh, my father's disability, uh, which I have written about before, as you know. He, um, he, wouldn't, he wouldn't have used that word for himself, but he had club feet and uh, chronic pain, overcame things a lot. He was a, a very determined person, a good sportsman. And my mother was this kind of remarkable to me, brilliant, I'm biased, brilliant woman who never completed high school, very serious. I was always very proud of her because she worked outside the home, which was extremely unusual. She should have been at, at home making marshmallow cakes and learning, going on icing courses. She had no interest in any of that. Um, and very much out there in the world, despite being on the edge of everything. And I had this wonderful older sister who tried unsuccessfully, I think, to control me, as older sisters do. And I was always kind of the baby in, in this world and brought up with and looked after by many African nannies and people who people don't really talk about but were very central to my, to my upbringing. It's a lovely picture that you've painted. It's a very evocative picture. One of the reasons for which you were proud of your mother is that she was a writer and you always felt she should have been a writer. In fact, when she was a little girl, she and Nadine Gordimer yes. both wrote stories, yes. which I think was something of a catalyst for the book. It actually wasn't a catalyst for the, for, for the, for the book, but it became absolutely central. I only did, my mother told me, I mean, Nadine Gordimer was 
Nobel Prize winner and, and, and so on and so forth. And my mother told me about her relationship with Nadine Gordimer very late in her life. And I think, I think it sort of tells you something about my mother's story is that they, you know, they were these little girls sending stories to one another, both having stories published in the newspaper. I've tried, I went to the SABC, the South African Broadcasting Corporation, to look in the archives because they were on Children's Hour in the late 1930s when they just couldn't find it, unfortunately, couldn't find a, a record of that. Obviously hugely important to my mother, and they were, they, you know, were both very, they loved writing, but I think associated for my mother with what she lost because Nadine Gordimer went on to be Nadine Gordimer and the Nobel Prize winner. And my mother never completed school, wrote beautiful letters. I mean, you know, the, the carefully crafted thank you note was, you know, perfect for her. But didn't become, she wanted to become a journalist. Wasn't allowed because she was a woman. But she was brilliant in your eyes. I mean, no question. Yes. No question. <laughs> At some stage, you moved to South Africa. You mentioned that both your yes. parents were from South Africa. You moved to South Africa. And there's a lot of water gone under the bridge since then. Why did you write this book? Oh, wow. Um, How I Lost My Mother. <laughs> That's the title. <laughs> Why? How? Well, I have to give you the, being a psychologist, I have to give you the psychologist's answer, which is, Every writer writes for narcissism. So, you know, the idea that somebody's going to actually read what I have to write has to tell you something about how I think about myself. But having got that out of the way, which I think is true, for me, and it's been throughout my life, and I, I think I'm lucky in this way, I write to find out what I think. Um, that's certainly true because I'm an academic and most of my writing is academic. But I also write to find out and to deal with what I feel. So if anything, this book is about my feelings and trying to understand them. I'm also very aware that I, I was writing a book about my father, able-bodied, which actually was, was published while my mother was dying. and She loved it and I'm so pleased because she was supposed to have, it was expected that she would have died before that book came out, but she was alive and she was there. Mm. Um, and I loved writing that book as, as I loved writing this one. But as she was dying, it was incredibly difficult in, in a whole range of ways, wonderful in others. And I had in my head, I will write about this, and it kind of protected me. I had the idea that there was going to be a future in which I would, would write about it. And indeed, you know, the, she died 10 years ago, so it's, you know, more or less exactly 10 years since she died and the, the book is now out. And it's, it's, it's certainly helped me emotionally in terms of dealing with an ordinary loss, no, no bigger than anybody else's. And we're very, you know, I've, I'm a privileged person. I have not had endured the huge traumas that most people in this country endure, in fact. But it helped me with my difficulties. It's... Help, help me. So that's why. Mm. A lot of reasons, mm. but, but that's why. Interesting yeah. that you say you loved writing this book, which isn't to say that it reads in any other way, but it can be very hard. And again, as a psychologist, mm. you will know, it can be very hard digging around visceral feelings yes. and things that, especially things from the past, and especially things of which you are not very proud. So I imagine whilst you might have loved writing it, there may have been some difficult moments. But aside from self-analysis, if you like, <laughs> 
what else did you have in mind? Because there are a lot of people who lose their mothers, a lot of people who lose parents, who undergo the sort of things that yeah. you underwent. Did you intend for it to be useful from that point of view? Yes. I mean, I, 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 I'm an academic, I'm a psychologist, and I'm, I work a lot in disability rights, and I, I, I'm a kind of activist scholar. So um, I hope it's not too clunky in, in, in the book. I, I hope it's not too obvious, but... There's a lot in this book, there's a political reason for the book, which isn't political in a sort of surprising sense, I suppose, and not the way that politics is usually thought about. But this is about talking about something which is so common. I mean, so the, you know, the, the interesting thing about this book is people of my age, everybody's got a story similar to mine, and everybody thinks they're the only one with the story. So there's something that's happening there about these stories being private, shameful, I think particularly for men. I certainly experienced that in, in looking after my mother. So this, the book is also about care. And as the, the world's population ages, and this is so throughout the world, it's much more obvious in more wealthy countries, but it's absolutely a feature of Africa. And in fact, I say to my students, the next big African epidemic after COVID is and I hope we don't have more infectious diseases, but Alzheimer's is the next big African epidemic. Um, there's no question about it. And all of this, the kind of the work of care across the lifespan as people live longer and as part of people's ordinary lives with disability and, and so on, it's hidden away. It's not spoken about. And this affects so many people. If I, I looked in preparation for the book at a whole lot of developmental psychology textbooks. And I'm, I'm actually working more sort of academically about, about this issue. Um, it's, it varies, but certainly in some of them, the idea is, you know, that you, the trajectory of life is that you you're a child and then you achieve things as an adult and then you sort of look back in your golden years at uh, with pride at what's gone before which is very sort of it tells you something about the american dream idea that's sort of in these kind of textbooks and life is much more complicated than that and in addition to that one issue that i talk about in the book is that a lot of a lot of the care so it's, it happens in the family it's usually done by women i think i'm unusual in the I'm a man writing about this. But then there's this whole huge international industry, which is not just African, and it's, it's transnational, of generally speaking, women of color who travel from their homes, often internationally, and look after disabled and old people, and are absolutely essential and central to me as a you know, professor in a university and with all the privileges that I have, I look independent. Part of why I look independent is because of the hidden labor of all of these people. How did I manage to look after my mother? A whole lot of difficult things for me, but there was a lot of labor of these women that went to, into caring for my mother. So that's the sort of more social part yes, of, of yes, the book. Which you, and you describe that very well. It's a whole area in itself. You, you describe that group of people, women, as invisibilized, which is yes. something that we, we'll address that. But I just want to come back to your mother and your relationship with your mother. And you go through it from childhood to, to young manhood to little man, how you were her little man, yeah. um, to your youth and early adulthood. 
But I'm going to move through that quite quickly, though that in itself is very revealing, and it must have been quite interesting for you to go through all that, you and your, your sister Jenny. But she eventually she moves to Cape Town, yeah. having been in Johannesburg, and you were looking forward to her move to Cape Town with some trepidation. Yes. I'm thinking, oh my goodness, what now? Which in itself is, is interesting. And then eventually she moves into a home, but eventually you take her into your home. You and your wife say come and live with us, which must, I'm going to come straight to that, because that must have been a huge step, because for a lot of people, when their parents become infirm and difficult to look after, they rather, this sounds cruel, pass the buck and have them go into a home, but you said, no, come to us. What precipitated that decision, and was it a good decision? Best and the most difficult decision of my life. So I'm enormously grateful that we did it, it's also the most difficult thing I've ever done. So I completely understand and do not judge other people who make different decisions. And you know, part of it has to do with why the parts that worked and they did work was who my mother was and our relationship and so on. And a lot of the decision was down to Louise, my wife, who never hesitated actually um, about this. My mother had lived in the shadow of, I'd mentioned this briefly before, of her mother-in-law and great aunt, these sort of Difficult women. Incredibly difficult old old women. Um, I grew up thinking that, you know, a feature of old age was just being awful to everybody and cruel because that's all there was my entire experience of it. And my mother was absolutely determined that she would never do this to her children. Never. She got herself organized into an old age home when she was quite young because she said you must build up the relationships with people while you're well so that they'll look after you when you're ill. And so there was absolutely no talk of this. It was, it was exactly what she, she didn't want. And then life happens. You know, she, um, she started having falls, I mean, one after the other, and was hospitalized. It, fe- it felt to me like there wasn't really a choice. And when we first took her in, we could have kept her room on. We kept it on, for, in fact, for months and months, paying the rent there, and so I'm thinking maybe one day she'll go back. But that f- kind of felt impossible. They also, it, it, it just with the kind of need developing, you know, the, one of the things that friends of mine face who have their parents living elsewhere is the running backwards and forwards. And I could, I, you know, I was, I work in Stellenbosch, which is a little bit way out of Cape Town. We live on the other side of town, and I, I could envisage myself driving backwards and forwards every day to see my mother and so on. So it, it was an incredibly difficult decision. But the decision was easy, but the experience was incredible. And we knew it would, my mother didn't want it, but you know, I'm glad you, we did it. You yeah. described it as the best decision of your life, and obviously it was a huge challenge. Why was it the best decision? Why was it a huge challenge? Okay. The best decision was, I think I hadn't anticipated this at all. As I say in the book, I had struggled. I, I was extremely close to my mother when growing up, and I, I felt... I still feel I was too close to her. And, you know, in some ways the book is a kind of a love story, I suppose, between a a child and his mother. And I made a decision when I was 17 that I have to run away. And and I ran away. Not, I went to another town for university and, and, and so on, but I had to cut some ties. And it, it was difficult, you know, doing that. But I, again, I think I was right. Um, when my father died, he died when I was a, a young man, suddenly 
I was quite distant from him and my mother and so on. So I'd spent a lot of time fighting to get away. And what having my mother back gave me, gave both of us, was this amazing opportunity to reconnect in a different way. With that came all of the difficult things, which I will get on to. But it was an opportunity to be close again to somebody who I admired, loved, respected. Repair. Repair yeah, the no, relationship. Absolutely. Mm. Absolutely. One of the, amongst the challenges which you outline in the book, amongst yeah. the challenges, was that people had this strange attitude about a man having to care so deeply yes. for his mother. And you quote, uh, you cite one incident, I think you had to go to a conference, yeah. and you said, listen, I'm sorry, I can't go. I have to look after my mother, which was very, what? <laughs> Frowned upon. What, you know, yes. this, is, this is Africa. What are you doing looking after your mother? Well, actually, not. In fact, somebody cited it as quite an African thing yes. to do to look after your mother. Was, is that a very social thing, that that men don't look after their mums? Oh, absolutely. And in fact, I, I always joke, a, a friend of mine did many years ago, she, she, she did some research, and I, I won't go into the details, but they were trying to work out who, she was trying to work out who, when they have dementia, is more likely to be cared for at home and who's more likely to be cared for in a hospital or an institution. It's a whole long story and I'm, I'm fudging the data and I don't care. But there was one factor that predicted who was more likely to be cared for at home and it was whether you had daughters or not, because daughters are more likely. And it's changed. In North America, it's changed enormously. And I'm speaking under correction, but half or over half of the people looking after people with dementia in North America now are men. So there's been this huge kind of social shift, but certainly in the context that I live in. I mean, I, it was an, an echo of what I experienced as a father of young children when my children were young. This is not something that men do. And the implication always, which is so sexist and insulting, was that somehow I couldn't control my wife. Um, because didn't I have a wife to do that? Well, my wife is a professional woman in her own right and I don't need to control her and she doesn't need to control me. But that was the implication, is that a man who control his who can control his wife will get the wife to look after the mother. And that was certainly with, you know, about this conference. The implication was, well, that's your wife's job. Yeah. Um, it's not. Yes. <laughs> another one of the challenges, or perhaps it's not so much of a challenge, but another a standout story is um, your sister Jenny, to whom you've dedicated the book, yes. which is a lovely gesture. Yes. She was living in Australia, and mm -hmm. I think she came over to see Mama when she was there at mm -hmm. your house. And she, there was a moment of criticism yes. of how you were doing it. And yes. I think you, for you, that was the red rag to the bull. Absolutely. And I think you just lost it. Yes. Um, can you just very <laughs> briefly describe that? Okay. Um, Jenny's the older sibling. She's the girl. And, and as we've been saying, there was always, I think she, she would have done anything to be the one looking after my mother. And although I had it more difficult, she was further away, so it was much more difficult for her. So on the surface, it was more difficult for me, but I, it was very hard for her. And she was enormously supportive. But siblings are siblings. <laughs> and, and we fought a lot as children. And the children are still there. And I'm in my 60s and it's still there. So she would come back. And the last time, in fact, she came back. And my mother was very ill. She was, in fact, you know, I think it was about six weeks from dying. And it was really important for my sister and my wonderful brother-in-law Ian and 
one of their children also came, Dean, my nephew, to spend time with my mother and they would sort of take her out and so on. And I felt that my mother was past that, but I'd had her all the time. And then there was a, the, the moment that you're, you're referring to, which I'm, I'm not proud of. They really exhausted her, I felt. And I was sort of, I didn't say anything because, you know, they have their own relationship with, with my mother. And I was just sitting with her and my sister called me aside, as big sisters do, telling me that you know, my mother was very tired now and um, I really mustn't tire her out. And I completely lost it <laughs> um, because I was in a complete rage you know, around the sort of things that children get in rage about their parents when they're little. What right did she have? I'd spent all the year, all the time, the whole year doing all of this. I knew what I was doing. She was playing the big sister and she'd been the one who, you know, listen to my voice. She'd been the one who tired my mother out and, and you know, how dare she? And I mean, I'm, she handled it remarkably. I, I often say, this is not, it's not original, but in family relationships, we, we're all allowed to behave badly, but as long as we behave badly one at a time, it's okay. <laughs> so, 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 I mean, she, she was very good about it, but I was completely, I was also enraged by her telling me in that last visit that she felt my mother looked better. And I, it, it felt that um, it so wasn't the case. It, it was. It wasn't the case. But I, but she needed. You know, she was such a loving daughter, as she's a loving sister to me, and remains so. But there was there was this childish, childish jostling going it, on it from my like side. You, um, it sounds like you dealt with a lot of things, um, and the fact that you admitted it and owned up, and the fact that you've dedicated the book to, to Jenny, I feel quite sure that oh, there's been a lot of repair work there. <laughs> but just lastly, coming back to one of the main ingredients of the book is this issue of carers, yes. um, who are a, a huge force without which, as you say, people couldn't really be carrying on with their lives. How do you see that that could be resolved? Do you think that we are all guilty of um, dismissing carers, just using them without accommodating what their feelings might be? Or what, how would you like to see that change? I wish I, could, I, wish I had the answer. But, but I do think there are things um, that we can all think about. I think it's particularly interesting. It's a particularly interesting issue in Africa and, and uh, I suppose, South Africa, because I think bound up with all of this for many, many people, and it's not just for white people, but I, th I think it is for white people, there's, there's all the complexity of thinking about race and racial oppression and, and so on, because carers, not all, uh, but most carers are, are women of color. And what do we tend to do when things are difficult to think about is we don't think about them. So we, you know... And we establish kind of rules by which things which are inherently uncomfortable become more comfortable for us. So there must be the correct boundaries. You know, these are all versions of, you know, don't fraternize with the help, which has a whole long racist colonial mm. kind of history. And that was certainly said to me in terms of my relationship with the carers. I think there, there, there's so many ways to defend against the complexity of this. And in fact, I'm doing. I'm writing another book at the moment, which is more academic, um, about exploitation and, and intimacy, which which kind of goes into this. Uh, it's called exploiting care. Um, goes into this in in more detail. 
I think a crucial thing that can be done, I mean, they're big political issues and so on, but is in making a commitment not to allow that the invisible to be invisible, to talk about it. I don't have the solution. It's absolutely clear from this book that I was as complicit as absolutely every other person. And I have no right to speak on behalf of these people. I don't claim to be, you know, but... The carers. The carers. Mm. I mean, I'm not, you know, they must speak for themselves. But I think there's a complicity around silence. And I think we can make a decision about that. And I mean, that's also been amazing since, you know, people have seen the book. They said, oh, you know, there's a kind of idealization that you often get. And many people are kind of wonderful. But part of the problem with some of the idealization of, you know, women, exploited women in general, and exploited women of color in particular, is that it masks a whole lot of other things. You know, it says, oh, this is natural. This is somehow, it's in women's nature or it's in black people's nature. And of course, it's a way of hiding all of the economic and and social things that go into that. We have to talk about it because this is, we're all going to be living longer. This is part of life. And it's not, I mean, I, I want to emphasize that although it's complicated for me as a white person, most of the the people in Africa who are employing domestic workers and are employing carers, you know, for people are not, are not white. So it's, it's not, it's a class you know, yes, issue. Yes, yeah. yes. Well, I hear you on hearing, getting a book from the voice of the carer. I think if anybody would like to stand up and do that, that would be a very interesting yes. book indeed. Yes. Just lastly then, Leslie, you know, we, we talk a lot about care and care homes and old age homes and yes. this sort of thing. Are there not lessons to be learned from traditional cultures where one simply took family members in, as you did, mm. and and have the extended family, or have we, as in society, have we missed that? Is that not going to happen anymore, given yeah. the busy lives that we lead? No, yeah, I mean, that's such a good and complicated kind of question. And of course, once again, in, in the kind of public life in South Africa, a lot of the talk, including from the deputy president, as it, ha- as it happens, around issues of, of care, intersect with ideas about what is natural Africanness, um, who looks after their own, who doesn't. Absolutely. I mean, I think if we can reconfigure our ideas about the family and so on, that's that's very important, very but healthy. very, very helpful. But I think that as families become more isolated from one another, which happens certainly in the Jewish community, which I my mother grew into and, and I was part of. Multi-generation, living multi-generationally is wonderful, but ideally, and this is part of sort of Africa, it should be within a broader community because there has to be broader kind of care networks. And as people in general urbanize and become more uh, separated from one another, that becomes more challenging. But absolutely, we have to think about that takes a village to look after an old person. Absolutely. <laughs> and it takes an old person to look after a village as well. <laughs> Leslie, thank you so much. And in the meantime, before that we have that ideal social structure, I think it's, it would be a very good idea for anybody in the same situation to read your book. It's called How I Lost My Mother, A Story of Life, Care and Dying. And it's published by Fitz University Press. Thank you very much. Well, thank you very much for having me, Nancy. Mm-hmm.